0: Welcome to the Perfectly Imperfect podcast with me, Sari Taylor, trained psychotherapist, coach and teacher of how to live our very best lives. I'll be covering a wide range of topics with some special guests, but always pointing back to our mental health and innate well-being. This chapter from my book is about panic attacks. So I'm just going to read it as it is from the book. Most of us, if not all of us, will experience this in our life in one form or another. My experience was once I'd had my first one, I was so in fear of the next that I lived in a cycle of worry about panic. In the media or on the TV, we'll see the typical experience of hyperventilating or blowing into a brown paper bag, and yet panic attacks can show up in so many different ways. My experience of a panic attack was that I'd get so overwhelmed so quickly that I would vomit. This would be the peak for me, and then I'd start to settle. The sheer boost of adrenaline in my body felt too much to process, and so I'd be sick. It was almost then like the act of being sick would become my focus, and in that moment, and so my thinking would start to fall away. We experience the beginning of a panic attack on a daily basis, if not more than once a day. Say, for example, you're laying in bed and you hear a loud bang in another room. It's likely you'll instantly think, what's that? You may feel instantly startled and tense. The adrenaline will quickly start to kick in. Then you'll very quickly have more thoughts about it, such as, I need to go and see what it is, or what if someone's in my house? Are my children okay? Then your wisdom, your gut instinct, it'll tell you what to do, guide you. You may decide to get up and go and have a look. You may wake your partner or someone else in the household and ask them to go and check. At this time, the thoughts will be racing and the body will be reacting physically too. You feel your heart pounding and you might even feel sick. You then walk into the hall to see that something has fallen and broken. Smashed to the floor. That's what created the loud noise. You then see the cat looking sheepishly up at you. Instantly, you know what's happened. And so your thoughts about the situation change. You stop pumping adrenaline into your body and over time you settle and reset. We can have the beginning of a panic attack, being startled for many things, even a door slamming, your phone ringtone going off when you didn't expect it. And just so many things. It's all harmless. And it's just the body's response to being startled. So going back to when I was in the state of fight or flight, a state of panic for days, weeks on end, what was actually happening? Well, I struggled to find reassurance and I lived in a constant state of being startled, which I just fed continuously always looking for answers and reasons and just not finding any. I just didn't understand and so that really frightened me. If I was sat in a doctor's surgery and they said they needed to inject me with adrenaline but to expect to feel a bit dizzy, a bit shaky and that after five minutes it would start to pass, then I'd just get on with it without too much fear or questioning and eventually my body would settle. However, When I was in constant fight or flight, I was struggling and resisting to accept that this was somehow my body's normal response to something. I struggled to believe that it would ever settle. And so my overthinking about the panic and overwhelm then meant that I was continuously pumping adrenaline into my system over and over again. And it just became a vicious cycle. One of the most simple and helpful things for me in terms of managing those feelings of panic was to have more understanding of what was actually happening in my body and why. Let me tell you a little bit about what happens in your brain when you stress and worry. The oldest part of the brain, the most primal and underdeveloped part, often called the lizard brain or the reptilian brain, is the part of the brain making sure you stay alive. It's where the flight, fight or fear reactions are dealt with. And it also regulates body temperature, regulation of heart rate and and so on. It's where we create patterns of behavior and habits but it's not too concerned in long-term solutions. I see it a bit like the a and department of the brain. When you go to a they're there to keep you alive and deal with any immediate symptoms and issues. They don't treat any long-term issues as they're really there just to keep us alive, just like your lizard brain. This part of the brain is immediately responding to your messages that you might be in danger. This is great if we're faced with some kind of emergency and need to be prepared. But imagine when you're worrying about what might happen next week, next month or next year. You're sending a message to the lizard brain that you are in danger through your thinking. The brain will then respond as though you're in immediate danger and it will react accordingly. It doesn't have the ability to work out whether you're overreacting, overthinking or worrying about the what ifs. It takes what you're telling it literally and does exactly what it's meant to do. It might speed up your heart rate, getting you ready to run or fight, for example. Yet when you're just sat watching TV and not planning to fight or run away from any danger, it can feel uncomfortable. And we then overthink that feeling of discomfort, again, sending a further message of danger. And so the cycle continues. I'll now go on to talk a little bit about those feelings of discomfort. Sometimes when we feel stressed or anxious, we can get cross with our symptoms But that's kind of like asking someone to do something really important for you and then getting cross with them for doing it. I hear people talking all the time about how they're going to fight their anxiety, face up to it and tackle it as though it's some kind of monster. I understand it can feel like that. I've been there many times, but it really isn't effective to try and fight anxiety. This may sound like a very random example, but I'm full of those. I see fighting anxiety similar to trying to kill yourself by holding your breath. You can't. Now, when I first started to use this example, I actually Googled to see if it was possible. Although my gut instinct told me it wasn't, the furthest anyone's ever got by trying to hold their breath is that they passed out. And when they did, their body instantly kicked back in and they started to breathe again. This is the thing about my, our bodies. They are amazing and they work in favor of keeping us alive. We are survivors. The more we try and fight nature's way and the system our bodies have in place, the more frustrating and the more suffering we may experience. The reason I wanted to explain what happens when we send messages of danger to our brains is because I want you to know and have peace of mind that your body has all of this covered. In the three principles, this is covered when we talk about universal mind and wisdom. This will be explored in chapter covering the three principles. Okay, so I'm not covering that chapter just now, but we don't have to tell our heart to beat or our lungs to fill with air to breathe. It just happens. Thoughts are also taken care of in the sense that they come and they go. They always pass and new thoughts come. This process happens so much quicker and with more ease when we don't interfere with what is. I appreciate that the actual simplicity of this can seem difficult to get our heads around. I tried so hard interfering with what is to fix myself for so long. Again, going back to the example of when I was in hospital and at times was so engrossed and laughing and connecting with others that the overthinking fell away and I felt like my old self. I saw this happening with so many of us in that room. We had stopped interfering with our natural way of being. We accepted ourselves. In that moment, we were present and just enjoying what was without expectation. A couple of little insights to finish off with. Over a number of years, I've had countless insights about thoughts coming and going and still do regularly. Sometimes we can get lost in our thinking and need a reminder. This is when we can see new things, new insights. I want to share an extract from The Power of Now by Eckhart Tully. Enlightenment, rising above thought, isn't thinking essential in order to survive in this world? Your mind is an instrument, a tool, It's there to be used for a specific task. And when the task is completed, you lay it down. As it is, I'd say about 80 to 90% of most people's thinking is not only repetitive and useless, but because of its dysfunctional and often negative nature, much of it is also harmful. Observe your mind and you will find this to be true. It causes a serious leakage of vital energy. Then Eckhart then went on to say, this kind of compulsive thinking is actually an addiction. What characterises an addiction? Quite simply this. You no longer feel that you have the choice to stop. It seems stronger than you. It also gives you a false sense of pleasure. Pleasure that invariably turns into pain. I was definitely addicted to overthinking every little detail in my life. My lizard brain had come up with a way of making me believe I was in control by constantly planning for the what-ifs and evaluating what had been a habit was definitely created and I felt stuck in it. I even remember some days when I was so anxious and then something would distract me. Once I finished what I was doing, I'd then sit and try and remember what I was anxious thinking about before. I would be thinking I hadn't figured it all out and so I had to go back and sort it. I now see how much energy and value I was giving to my thoughts. I believed them to be true and putting such importance on figuring it all out in a desperate attempt to avoid hospitalization again. I now see that I was doing this very thing that put me there in the first place. Whilst I remember, let me tell you what I mean by bringing thoughts to life and giving them value. I'm in Manchester and can remember very clearly when the MEN arena bombing happened. Now, we see on the news all too frequently that people have been bombed, usually in other countries. When I might see a banner pop up on the TV that says three people killed in a in bombing in Syria. Now I have thoughts about that and those thoughts will create a feeling, a response to my thoughts about it. Yet without wanting to sound like I'm not compassionate, those thoughts will pass and so will the feelings and I'll continue on with my day. Now when I saw a snippet on the news about the bomb in Manchester, I brought that to life in my mind. I wasn't there, I didn't know anyone who was there, although I have worked with people who were there, and yet it had a much bigger impact on me than seeing that there had been a bomb in Syria. Is that because I don't value a Syrian's life as much as someone's in Manchester? Absolutely not. It's because, it's because I started to research. I was sat on my phone looking up the events of the bombing as well as watching on the news with the volume turned up. Full concentration and full energy given to thinking about the situation. The more I thought about it, the more intense my feelings were about it. I reacted to it in my thoughts as if it, as if it was up the road. I pictured myself, my family being in that situation, yet I wasn't directly affected by the bomb in the same way that I wasn't by a bomb in Syria. If I was then to link this back to my experience of being in hospital with anxiety, which I found traumatic on a number of levels, every time I had a feeling of anxiety, my my thoughts, my thinking would take me back there. What if I ended up back there? What would it do to my family? What if I was even worse this time? All thoughts creating instant feelings of fear and frustration as well as sadness, meaning I was experiencing that moment as though I was back there. I wasn't. I was experiencing my thinking in that moment, living in the feeling of those thoughts. There was a huge place of resistance for me for many, many years. The fear of what if. One of the insights that changed this for me was realising that in actual fact, I could never get a cast cast iron guarantee that I would never end up back in hospital. I was unable to predict the future and control the outcome. I could try and avoid it. But ironically, the harder I tried to avoid it, the more I would feel like I was going to end up back there. I then had a further insight into this where something started to click when I realised that even if I did end up back there, I would survive. I'd get through it. This started to change the way I thought about it. I was not as panic-stricken when it entered my mind. When I started to think about it, I could see a glimmer of hope even amongst the panic. I didn't have to do anything to see this. It came to me as if by magic, but that's wisdom for you. The more I saw things from another perspective, the less the thoughts would crop up. All I've done, if I had to be specific, is explored the three principles and been very open-minded to what I have heard and seen. Interestingly, when writing this book, I've had more thoughts about my time in hospital as I'm bringing it into my awareness, but they're not creating feelings of fear anymore. I have a knowing that's hard to explain that I will not end up back in hospital and that thought is quickly followed up with and if I did, I would be okay. This is the end of the thought process. I know it's taken care of and it passes as quickly as it comes. I heard a quote for the first time about the principles by Dr. Bill Pettit, my wonderful mentor. I'm not sure if it was originally his explanation, but he reminded me that the three principles that I coach and talk about and explore with others now and not a prescription, they are a description. Basically, they're not a strategy, something we need to do in order to get better. They're a description wonderfully brought into the mainstream by Sydney Banks and now so many other wonderful coaches, a description of human nature, our very being, and the way we work as humans. The more we see and understand the description, the truth of what is, the less we keep searching for a prescription. I can remember in the days where I was still trying really hard to fix myself and be okay, spending hours and hours of time, not to mention the thousands of pounds I spent. I just wasn't able to see that it was much easier than I ever knew. It's almost like when you hear a riddle and then when you get the answer, it's so simple. And for a minute, you'll almost search for it to be wrong because it can't be that easy. And how did I not see that? We didn't see it for lucky. That's what was happening with me. I've researched and tried so much to fix anxiety that I was massively overcomplicating it. I was attached to that overcomplication in some ways because I needed to be able to justify all the hard work I'd put into being anxious as well as trying to fix it. The simplicity of all this scared and frustrated me. It seemed too good to be true, but then the more I would see, the less I could deny the truth that was showing up daily. Even in the simplest of ways, I can remember watching a program with my husband. It was about a child being abducted who was eventually found dead. A lot of the experience of watching that for me was distressing and unnerving. I knew it wasn't a true story and that the characters were actors, but I still felt uneasy. Of course I did. All the way through, I just kept thinking about how I would ever cope in that situation. How would my daughter ever cope? What if it happened? And a load of other pretty gruesome thoughts. At one point, my husband packed up with something like... They've messed up there. She didn't have those shoes on in the first part of that scene. Now they're different. I remember my reaction to to that was to think, what a dickhead. Does he not realise how I'm feeling right now? And is this all he cares about? And then I laughed to myself because I realised that he was simply having a different experience to me because his thinking was different. Neither of us was right or wrong, just two different experiences of the same thing. I know that if I had not seen this, I could have gone down a road of believing I couldn't watch stuff like that as it affected me too much. That's not true. There were many different ways I could have experienced that program. This is just so similar to how also how phobias develop. My mum has a phobia of frogs, for example. It's nothing at all to do with the frog. Otherwise, we'd all be afraid of frogs and we're not. What causes the discomfort in the phobia is all the layers of thoughts. Take the words, frogs are slimy. This is neutral and means nothing. However, if my mum then starts to alter that, take the idea of them being all slimy. What if they jump? What if I feel them? I feel sick just thinking about it. Now I feel hot and faint and so on. Mum then may then feel that the only way to avoid the discomfort is to avoid the frogs. Those poor frogs, it's not their fault they're slimy. I hope you get the gist that you're only ever experiencing the feeling of your thoughts and they will always change and pass. So, hope that was helpful. And I will catch up with you all soon.